Who is Jesus? That's the question we've been asking these past 14 sermons throughout Mark's gospel. From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16, it is the question that Mark orients his biography of Jesus around. It's the question that every individual and every group has to grapple with in the narrative. So over the past eight chapters, we've seen the crowds amazed by Jesus' miracles and hungering for more displays of his power. Well, they viewed him as a doctor on demand. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have grown increasingly opposed to Jesus, accusing him of being filled with the devil. Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. His hometown couldn't get past the idea that this was little old Jesus who used to run, with the, run around with the kids. Uh, we have seen some understanding and insight into Jesus' character, almost always by the most unlikely of characters. But that's usually brief and quite out of the ordinary. So a formerly demon-possessed man begged to be with Jesus, showing he understood what it means to be a disciple. A paralytic had his sins forgiven because of his faith in the authoritative Son of Man. And then the last time we were in Mark, in chapter 7, we saw a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman, a member of the enemy of the people of the Jews. Well, she evidenced incredible insight into Jesus' overflowing goodness. But then again, Jesus' own disciples have proven hard-hearted and unseeing. They've been blind to the identity and mission of Jesus. And yet the question of who is Jesus, well, of course, it hasn't been limited to Jesus' own lifetime. The past 2,000 years have afforded innumerable supposed answers. So the Gnostic heretics in the early centuries said that Jesus was a God-like, human-like, angelic being. Muhammad and Islam viewed Jesus as an important prophet. Thomas Jefferson famously viewed Jesus as a progressive moralist, an impressive moral teacher of enlightened values. Today, others insist Jesus was a misunderstood itinerant rabbi or a political zealot, or still others insist Jesus was the first self-help guru seeking to teach us the be happy attitudes. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? That's the question before you and me that we all have to answer. It's a question that, you know, our answer to it, it might be uninformed or meticulously researched. Our answer might be superficial or life-changing. But we all have to answer that question. We all have an answer to that question, whether we know it or not. And so how are we to go about it? How are we to answer this question? I suggest we don't first turn to 20th century German biblical scholars. We don't first turn to medieval monks, but to Jesus himself, to hear his own self-definition and self-revelation. That's what we're going to do this morning as we consider Mark chapters 8 and 9, so I'd encourage you to turn there now. From Jesus' baptism when God the Father anointed God the Son with God the Holy Spirit until chapter 8. We've seen Jesus ministering to massive crowds, displaying merciful compassion, and teaching about God's kingdom. He's been opposed by some, misunderstood by many, and this morning he aims to clarify all of that. 
for those with ears to hear. The last time we were in Mark's gospel, you'll remember it was four weeks ago, uh, we considered Jesus' ministry at rock bottom, as it were. His disciples had proven spiritually blind and unable to see. Things looked bleak. However, in our passage, things are about to change. Uh, Our passage this morning serves as the great hinge in the book of Mark. So uh, the book of Mark, this passage is kind of like the Rockies. Everything before goes one way, everything after goes another way. After this, the rest of Mark's gospel is the unfolding of what we find in these verses. So we'll be in Mark chapter 8, verse uh, 22 through chapter 9, verse 13 this morning. We'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus is the preeminent one who calls us to follow him in losing our lives for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is the preeminent one who calls us to follow him in losing our lives for the sake of the gospel. So read with me, Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me. And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Amen. Well, our first point is found in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, entitled, A Two-Part Unveiling. What we're going to find is that this healing is basically a living parable. That is, this experience of the blind man serves as the archetype for what's going to happen with the disciples. So Jesus and the disciples arrive in Bethsaida on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and a man is brought to Jesus. And people beg Jesus to touch the man, meaning they want him to touch him healingly. And Jesus begins this very tactile healing process. And then he asks at the end of verse 23, do you see anything? Uh, This is significant because it's the exact same language Jesus has just used with his disciples in the boat on their way to Bethsaida a few verses earlier. Here, Jesus interacts with this man who's literally blind, whereas in the previous section, Jesus had accused his hand-picked 12 apostles of being spiritually blind. So, So look at verses 17 and 18, just before our passage. Jesus had asked, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Uh, The significance of Jesus using this same exact language of sight and blindness with this man here in Bethsaida, it's that this man's physical condition symbolizes the disciples' spiritual condition. Currently, they're both blind. But because of the mercy of Jesus, they will soon receive their sight. Yet this isn't like the other healing miracles, is it? Whereas previously, Jesus healed immediately and completely. In verse 24, the the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees. They look like ants walking around. Uh, Why does this healing seemingly not work? Because it will require, in verse 25, Jesus laying his hands on his eyes again, and he opens his eyes, and his sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly. Why the the two-part healing? Why the two-part unveiling? Well, it's because as this man received a gradual understanding and perception of reality, so too the disciples are going to get a gradual, progressive understanding of reality. Jesus' identity, it will be slow to come on for them. They will get some insight. 
They will get a certain unveiling, but it's going to take time. It will be progressively revealed. If last week was the lowest of the lows, when Jesus' handpicked followers still did not see, in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus will begin to open the eyes of the disciples. From now on, they will gain greater clarity and insight, and their, develop will, their understanding will develop over time according to the mercy of Jesus, just like this blind man's sight. And so verse 26 ends with Jesus once again commanding silence. It reads, Jesus sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village. That is, don't go around telling people what I've done for you. You must be quiet for now. This brings us to our second section in verses 27 to 9-1, entitled, The Second Two-Part Unveiling. Okay, so just like with the blind man, we're going to have two parts here. We're going to have a two-part unveiling. The first of these is found in verses 27 to 30, entitled, Jesus' Preeminence as the Christ. Jesus' Preeminence as the Christ. So we begin in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus was already north in Bethesda, Bethsaida. He's going even farther north now into Gentile foreign lands. And then he begins the explosive dialogue right there in verse 27. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? It's a really fascinating question. Because we might ask, what do people think about my job performance? We might ask people, what do people think of my parenting? Right? So when we ask those types of questions, we ask questions about people's perception of our actions. But Jesus asks a much more personal and probing question. Who do people say that I am? He's not asking about his question, his actions. He's saying, have people seen through my actions into my identity? And Jesus knows that his identity has been shrouded and concealed and often misunderstood. He wants to know if people have accurately perceived it. And so notice what verse 28 says. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. I mean, those are some pretty impressive names. Before we get to Peter's right answer, we have to realize, wow, I'm guessing nobody here has been confused for John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. That's pretty high company, pretty esteemed. These people have pretty high views of Jesus. It's not nearly high enough. My friends, beware of opinions of Jesus that seem to be exalted, that seem to recognize his greatness but fall short of his true glory. He's not merely a prophet, as Islam teaches. He's not merely an enlightened religious teacher. Don't be fooled by what the crowds think. Who, who then is he? Verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Friends, here we come to the pinnacle of the summit of the highest mountain in the tallest mountain range in Mark's gospel. Finally, we clearly and unambiguously see the identity of Jesus laid out. He is the Christ. Of course, Mark's told us this. 
You remember Mark 1.1? Mark's given us the bluff, the bottom line up front. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we, the readers of Mark's gospel, are like, oh, this is old news. But in the narrative, this is the first time we see a human rightly confess who Jesus is. What does Christ mean? Well, it means anointed one. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah in the Old Testament referred to the one who is anointed by God to be the king of Israel. We read about this Messiah earlier in our service. Jonathan did in Psalm 2. This anointed one. In Jesus' day, the Messiah was expected to come and judge the wicked Roman oppressors, to reign as Israel's victorious king. The Messiah is the son of David, heir to the throne. He would rule over Israel and her enemies forever and ever. That's what Israel was expecting. And so now, this long-awaited Messiah, this son of David, promised from 700 years earlier, 1,000 years earlier, the Messiah has now come, come in the person of Jesus. From the teaching to the exorcisms to the feeding of the 5,000 to the healings, Jesus has sought to show for those who have eyes to see the answer to this one question. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, Jesus. You are the King. This is Peter's confession. How exactly did Peter come to know this? Because remember, again, if in verses 17 and 18, the disciples are absolutely blind and deaf and unfeeling, they don't know who Jesus is. How has Peter had such a dramatic change of heart? Well, it's just like the blind man in Bethsaida. Did the blind man give himself sight? No. How did the blind man begin to see? Jesus showed him mercy. Jesus opened his eyes. This is what's happened with Peter and the disciples. So in Matthew's account of this, Matthew 16, 7, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the eye-opening revelation that we all need. And yet, if Peter gets the answer right, why does Jesus respond the way he does in verse 30? Right? I mean, if Jesus' whole ministry has been leading up to this confession, isn't it time for shouting it from the rooftops? Why the command to be silent? You see, although Peter and the disciples now knew the correct title of Jesus, King Jesus, Jesus the Christ, they still didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what type of king Jesus would be. As we'll see in the next couple of chapters, they had an entirely earthly, human way of viewing Jesus' kingship. That is, their eyes, like the blind man's, were only partially opened so far. They didn't quite see things clearly. So Jesus tells them to be quiet until he has taught them more, until they understand more. And so we come to our second section, and point number two, the necessity of the Son of Man and his followers to suffer. This is verses 31 to 9-1. The necessity of the Son of Man and his followers to suffer. So look at verse 31. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. After eight chapters of veiled glory, again, just notice the, the veil is beginning to be removed as Jesus plainly teaches them about what's to come. The disciples, they don't need more miracles. They don't need more parables. They need a clear revelation from God. Uh, friends, this is what also we need. If we are to know God, we need God to speak clearly to us. We don't need tarot cards. We don't need astrology. We don't need riddles. We need a clear word and revelation from God about who he is and what he's like. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is why the Bible is so dear to us individually and as a church. Uh, we have no saving knowledge of God apart from it. The heavens declare the glory of God, yes, but that knowledge is only sufficient to damn us. To know God savingly, we need the words of Jesus. We need the special, special revelation of God. And so notice exactly what verse 31 says. Jesus has rightly confessed Jesus as the Christ, and yet Jesus he then begins to speak about the Son of Man. What's up with that? Well, this isn't the first time Jesus has used this title. It first appeared in chapter 2 when Jesus authoritatively forgave the sins of a paralytic. The title comes from Daniel 7, where we read about a human being, a son of mankind. Son of man who will receive dominion and authority in a kingdom from God, who rules and judges all the nations. You can hear the conceptual similarities between Christ and son of man. Yet if the language of the Christ brings to mind images of glory and splendor. Here, Jesus imbues the Son of Man with darker and more foreboding tones. You notice the four things that Jesus says must happen to the Son of Man. It is necessary that he suffer. It's necessary that he be rejected by the Jewish leaders themselves. It's necessary that he be killed. And it's necessary that he rise again. These would all have been shocking statements to the disciples. I mean, the, the Son of Man, the glorious, riding on the clouds of heaven, Christ, that Son of Man, to whom all the nations would bow. Jesus, what do you mean that all these terrible things must happen? Oh, friends, take note. The path to glory for Christ as for the Christian is through suffering. There is no way around it. Suffering is not optional. It is necessary. It must happen for Christ and for the Christian. Uh, beware of all those who would say that you can get the glory now. The ease, the comfort, the peace, all of that now with no suffering. Well, that was not the, that was not the path for Christ. No, Jesus says he must suffer. He doesn't explain why the Son of Man must suffer. We'll get that in chapter 10. But before he can get any further, you see Jesus, or Peter's response there in verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Friends, it's a bad idea to try to rebuke Jesus. 
Just don't do it. We know that Peter is the ringleader and representative for the group uh, because verse 33 mentions Jesus seeing his disciples before he responds to Peter. And Jesus had asked them, who do you guys, who do you, plural, say that I am? And then Peter responds. Uh, So Peter is the, you know, he seems to represent the group both in his right confession and he represents the group in his misunderstanding. So he says in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Friends, don't try to tell Jesus who you think he needs to be. All the time. I trust you do as well. I hear people say things like, well, I like to think of Jesus as X. Or, well, you know, Jesus would never Y. Friends, don't try to define who Jesus can be. Our job is not to box Jesus in into what our preconceived notions are. Our job is to receive his teaching and humbly submit to it. To receive him for who he is. Don't let your categories define who Jesus is, but rather listen to him in his authoritative word. It's really interesting when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because if you're like me, you probably think of demonic possession and Satan worship as exceptionally dark and dangerous. And of course it is. But I wonder if we also notice, I wonder if we also recognize how dark and dangerous worldliness is. Thinking according to man in human ways. Do you and I recognize that our normal thought patterns and priorities and plans, when we think according to the things of man, in that we can set ourselves in opposition to God in our desire to flee from pain and trials? Peter here shrinks back from the idea of suffering for Christ's kingdom. And Jesus accuses Peter of being aligned with the devil when he sets his mind on the things of man. Peter here reveals a mindset that is more concerned about avoiding suffering than adoring the Savior. And then, if Peter represents the disciples, it seems that the disciples, this this attitude... Well, Jesus recognizes that it's typical of the crowds. So now in verses 34 to 9-1, Jesus turns to the the crowd of people. Jesus knows that this sin isn't limited to Peter and the 12. They've not cornered the market on this suffering-averse philosophy. In one of, I think, only two places in Mark's gospel, Jesus actually calls the crowd together. Do you notice throughout Mark's gospel, he's like going places, healing people, crowds just keep swarming him. I think this is one of only two places Jesus calls the crowd together because he has something really important to tell them. So look there, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus is clarifying exactly what it means to follow him and be his disciple. 
He doesn't want anyone to follow him based on a misconception that this was going to be easy or pain-free. Jesus was emphasizing the cost of discipleship. And he did so via extremely graphic language. You know, to those of us in a Christian culture with um, Christian necklaces, Christian steeples, sorry, crosses, right? Uh, crosses on jewelry, crosses in art. I think it's hard to understand how jarring and absurd Jesus' comments would have seemed to his contemporaries. Because the cross was barbaric. A Roman crucifixion was gruesome. Death by crucifixion was a Roman staple of imperial rule, but it was reserved for the most heinous of criminals. It was death from your your lungs drowning in your own blood. It was agony. So for Jesus to say, take up your cross, it would have sounded a little bit like, if anyone would come after me, let him receive the firing squad. Let him accept the electric chair. Receive lethal injection. Friends, does that strike you? In this, Jesus was clarifying what it meant to follow him. Lest his disciples get the wrong idea that following Jesus simply involved impressive teaching and miraculous feedings and health restored and the kingdoms that come in. Jesus' point is that suffering is not optional. It must come for Jesus and it will come for his followers. What does it mean to deny ourselves? I can't improve at all on John Stott's definition. In his book, The Cross of Christ, he writes, To deny ourselves is to behave towards ourselves as Peter did towards Jesus when he denied him three times. The verb is the same. He disowned him, repudiated him, turned his back on him. Self-denial is not denying to ourselves luxuries such as chocolates, cakes, cigarettes, and cocktails. It may include this. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Friends, this is the call on your life if you would seek to follow Christ. Just as he took up his cross, if we would be his followers, so we too must deny ourselves and take up our cross. I wonder if that sounds hard to you. Sounds hard to me. In following Jesus, are we just masochists? Right, is this just one more painful duty we should perform because I guess it's the right religious thing to do? No. No, that's not the only thing that's going on. Because Jesus then gives two reasons why it's a really good idea to deny yourself and take up your cross. And it's so important that you grasp these two reasons. Because as John Piper says, ultimate self-denial is not biblical. Do you know that? Ultimate self-denial 
Denial is not biblical. That is, Jesus isn't calling us to daily self-denial and self-crucifixion, ultimately to take good things from us, to take our joy. No, he's telling us that to give us good things, to give us joy through denying ourselves. So, So look at verse 35, his first reason. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So why does Jesus want you to take up your cross, deny yourself, lose your life? Because that is the pathway to saving your life. Ultimately. Ultimately, he wants you to save your life in the here and now through denying yourself. Because, verse 36, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Verse 37, for what good is it? What are you going to give back? What are you going to pay? What will you give for your soul? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is making the point that life is more than breathing. It is knowing God. We, as his people, live for a day beyond the grave. We live for a world beyond this world. The sufferings that we endure in this life are bearable because we know there's a day coming when there will be no more sufferings. We know that life is more than physical breath and material stuff. If you gain lots of impressive material things in the here and now, accomplishments, reputation, houses, boats, status, prestige, but you lose the most valuable thing. Well, that's not a win. <laughs> right? If you lose your phone, some of that happens to you, I presume. doesn't happen to me. If you lose your phone in your house, and then you burn your house down to find your phone, you did not gain anything. You lost. Oh, friends, Jesus doesn't want that to be us. Sacrifice is integral to the Christian life, but it is not ultimate. In the the new heavens and new earth, we will realize that we never sacrificed anything, ultimately. In the here and now, the sacrifices are real. I'm not denying that by any means. But when we get to heaven, we will not think we have sacrificed one iota. Every trial will be worth it. For Christ and the gospel will have saved our soul. As the missionary martyr Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you're looking to get a tattoo this week, that'd be a pretty good one. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The second reason why it's a good idea to deny yourself and take up your cross is found in verse 38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In short, you reap what you sow. In this life, if Jesus' words of self-denial are too off-putting for you so that you want nothing to do with him, well, that's exactly what he'll give you on Judgment Day. 
As Christians, we live in light of that day when the Lord Jesus will return with the glory of his Father to judge the world. The guarantee of that day that Christ will return in glory is that some of those in Jesus' very audience, as chapter 9, verse 1 states, will get a foretaste of that glorious and powerful kingdom of God. And so as we conclude this, this first, or this second point, whatever point we're on, there's a lot of points this morning. To which class of beings does Jesus belong? Is he a lowly human servant, suffering and dying, as he said in verse 31? Or is he the exalted, glorious, victorious, and returning son of the Father? as he said in verse 38? Well, the answer is both. As we confess in the Ligonier statement on Christology, in the one person of Jesus Christ, there exists two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. He is truly man who dies on a cross, and he is truly God coming soon to judge the living and the dead. And so what's so important about these verses in Mark's gospel is how they display that you do not understand Jesus rightly if you have not begun to take up your cross daily. You don't rightly understand Jesus if you have not begun to deny yourself. It's what Jesus himself demanded. And so we come to our third point this morning. In chapter 9, verse 2 to verse 13, entitled, A Third Two-Part Unveiling. If the previous story showed that disciples failed to understand how humble and lowly Jesus is, well, this next section shows that they also hadn't grasped how glorious and exalted he is. So the first part is in verses 2 to 8, entitled, Jesus' Preeminence as the Son of God. To reassure his disciples that their cross-taking would be worth it, Jesus has just said that, that some of them will see the kingdom of God coming in power, and so that's exactly what we see here. It's really interesting. In verse 2, he's apparently forgiven Peter for his brashness. He takes him along with James and John up on a high mountain, and then you see in the second half of verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Here we see God lift the curtain, as it were, to the glory of Jesus. Here the disciples see the kingdom of God with power and glory as Jesus' true identity, without the veil of human vesture, comes shining forth in dazzling and blazing light. His appearance recalls the description of God himself in Daniel 7, that passage where the Son of Man, that, that's where it comes from. In Daniel 7, it says, the ancient of days, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Now, this transformation of Jesus, it's proving the deity of Christ to the disciples. They're getting a glimpse for who Jesus truly is. And then in verse 4, Elijah and Moses appear alongside Jesus. They're talking with him. And, you know, Peter just puts his foot in his mouth again. 
Many of us take comfort from Peter. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. (laughs) You know, just like all the wrong answers of Jesus as John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet. So Peter gives a an exalted view of Jesus. I mean, he's, try, he's trying to compliment Jesus. If you say Jesus is like Moses and Elijah, there's like the two head honchos in the Old Testament. Wow. He even puts Jesus' name first on the list. Do you notice that? We're going to make a tent for you and Moses and Elijah. Oh, friends, but such a view is not exalted enough. Jesus is not merely one of the prophets. He's not even the best of the prophets. If you think that that is honoring Jesus, that is mistaken. He is a prophet, but he is so much more than a prophet. Because look at verses 7 and 8. And a cloud cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. Friends, who does God say Jesus is? That's an important question. God says he is his son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Friends, Jesus stands in a class of his own. In your life, Jesus must stand in a class of his own. Is he the king of your life? Does he rule supreme? Or do you make him share the throne with money or sex or leisure or comfort? Oh, beloved, Jesus is peerless and we ought to treat him as such. He alone is the son of God from all eternity, worthy of our very lives. And so just as we saw at the end of chapter 8, once we truly grasp who Jesus is, well, that informs how we respond. This is my beloved son. Okay, well, what should I do with that? The appropriate response is, listen to him. Listen to him when he tells you he's going to the cross. Listen to him when he tells you it's good for you to deny yourself. Listen to him. Because you cannot follow Jesus and be ashamed of his words. You do not honor Jesus as the Son of God if you do not listen to him and obey him. And so as we conclude our message this morning, let's consider our final sub-point in verses 9 to 13, entitled, The Necessity of the Son of Man and His Followers Suffering. You notice Jesus is going to make the same exact point he's just made. Jesus is slowly unveiling himself in stages to his disciples. The themes are parallel to what we previously saw. Notice verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Okay, again, so apparently the Son of Man is going to die. You need to die first before you can rise. Here we get the final silence command in the entirety of Mark's gospel. But for the first time, for the only time, it comes, well, it comes with an expiration date. 
They can't share what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Because the cross and the resurrection are not ancillary to Jesus' identity. You know, it's, it's beyond tragic that there are people who have latched onto Jesus' life and teaching and assumed that's the totality of who he is. The cross and the resurrection are irrelevant. Friends, the cross and the resurrection are not irrelevant. They are central. Until you understand the cross and the resurrection, you don't understand Jesus. The reason these disciples can't go blabbing is because they haven't seen the main event. You don't go reviewing a movie after you've seen the trailer. You need to see the most important part. Make no mistake. Jesus was heading to the cross. And his resurrection would prove that he is the son of God. He is the Christ. You and I cannot pay for our own sins. That's why we need the cross. You and I cannot defeat the power of Satan and sin and hell. That's why we need the resurrection. We can't follow Jesus until we've taken up our cross. We can't follow Jesus until we fully understand who he is. Notice. Notice Jesus. The Christ. He is the one who denied himself. He is the one who took up his cross. He laid his life down. He didn't seek to gain the whole world by preserving his soul. He rather lost his life by willingly laying it down, enduring suffering and death so that we can now have life. He rose triumphantly from the grave so that we could be freed from the wrath to come. That's why if you're here and you're not a Christian, we so want you to continue investigating what it means to follow Jesus and to understand who Jesus is. Uh, keep asking that question. Keep reading this Bible. Turn to him. Put your trust in him. As the sinless son of God and wrath substitute, he is the only one who can save you from your sins. This is what Jesus has accomplished, and until he's accomplished it, Peter, James, and John weren't to declare it yet. They were confused by Jesus' instructions in verse 10. So instead, they changed the subject to Elijah in verse 11. But Jesus won't let them off the hook. He returns to the topic of the Son of Man in verse 12. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. In short, Elijah had to come to restore all things. And by the way, do you remember how they treated Elijah, John the Baptist? They killed him, just like the scriptures said they would. And guess what the scriptures also say? That the Son of Man would suffer many things. Brothers and sisters, suffering is no stranger to the Son of Man, and neither is it to his followers. Whether from persecution from outsiders or the daily cost of dying to self, uh, Christians, we can joyfully take up our crosses in the knowledge that Jesus has already trailblazed that path. And it does not lead ultimately to death, but it leads to life, to resurrection glory. So that now whatever trials we face, we can do so with the same resolve and confidence of Jesus. Just as he took up his cross, so do we. For just as he gained his life by losing it, so shall we. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we marvel. We marvel at your love for us, that you would send your only beloved son to make us wretches, your treasure. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are the one that that opens our eyes to the truth and beauty of Jesus. We would be just like that blind man. We would be just like those blind disciples were it not for you. And Lord Jesus, we praise you. We glorify you this morning as the one who took up your cross and laid down your life for us because of your great love, because of your tender mercy. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Would you give us courage and faith and strength as we take up our crosses? Would you strengthen our weak knees? Would you show us mercy when we doubt and fear and tremble? Would you cause us to look to your cross? Give us grace as we survey it and ponder it and then take up our own. We pray this all, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.